You're listening to the End Sunday Show. Leaving behind religious obligation to find a more authentic expression of Christ in us. This is the End Sunday Show. friends, Mikey Adams here with the Unsunday Show. In this episode, I want to talk to you about something that I've been thinking about for the last several weeks. It actually sprang out of a conversation that Susan and I had about three or four weeks ago, and since that conversation, I've just been mulling this over. And so I wanted to record some of my thoughts here and just get them out there so that I could basically talk about it and let you in on some of the secret ways that my little brain works. So I want to talk to you about a militarized faith. And by a militarized faith, I simply mean the influence that military-type thinking has had on our view of Christianity. In other words, as Susan and I were driving along and I started to share some of these thoughts with her, it dawned on me that so much of what is in the modern evangelical church today in the West, I'm only speaking about in the West, is kind of military-based. It's been influenced by military thought. It's been influenced by military experiences. I mean, we have top-down authority. We have kind of a ranking system, you know, of, of hierarchy within the, within the institutional church, institutional Christianity. And I think a lot of that has been influenced over the years by uh, military thinking. You think about, you know, World War I, World War II, and all of the influences that that had on the church at the time, and afterwards, even up to today. And I think that song at the beginning there is kind of indicative of that. I remember having our kids sing that song when they were really young, and we would kind of sit there and glow with pride and think, you know, this is really cool. But, you know, listening to that now, I, I wonder, you know, what, what does that do to your view of God and to your, to your view of the body of Christ? Is the body of Christ an army? Are we to be ready to foister our beliefs on someone else using militaristic tactics, using force even. It seems that when you look at at church history as a whole, that's what a lot of it is. A lot of church history is religious organizations, religious people, church people, imposing themselves on other groups of people by force. Unfortunately, that's the record that we have, and it's there, and we can't do anything about it. That's part of history. But then we think about Christian nationalism too, you know, like Christian America or Christian Europe or however however we want to phrase it and in whatever context. The whole thing of Christian nationalism, that we are a Christian nation, and I'm using air quotes when I say that. And I remember growing up back in the 60s and 70s, one of the TV stations that we used to watch had Psalm 3312 kind of as a little sound bite just before a show started. And the point of the whole thing was to solidify in the listener's thinking that we are a Christian nation, that America is a Christian nation. In other words, to inform Christian nationalism as the norm. And if you're not familiar with Psalm 33:12, that's that passage that says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. 
And that little blurb would come on the TV in between shows. I can't tell you how many thousands of times I saw that. And it kind of grooms you to start thinking, hey, that's, that's about America. Because after all, we were founded on Christian principles, right? But the sad thing about using Psalm 3312 in that way, and really any passage that we can use, if we take it out of context, it's very easy to take a passage out of context and make it say anything that we want to say. But Psalm 3312, written by King David back in ancient Israel times during the Old Covenant, wasn't about us. It wasn't about me. It wasn't about you. It was about the Old Covenant nation of Israel. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Historically, who is that? That's Old Covenant Israel. It's not some modern country today. It's not America. It's not Brazil. It's not Europe or any nation within the European Union. It's not Turkey. It's not France. Who is it? It's the Old Covenant nation of Israel. Because looking at it historically, you have to come to the conclusion that Old Covenant ancient Israel is the nation in view there because historically they were the only nation that could make that claim. But that's one passage that I've seen taken out of context in order to try and and foister or bolster a position that, yeah, there's Christian nationalism today and God is with our country and not with any, any other country. But that isn't the gospel. That isn't the new covenant. In the new covenant, God isn't dealing on a national level. He's saving individuals. And that's the body of Christ. And then historically, if we think about Christian nationalism in the, in the historical context, when has that ever succeeded? If Christian nationalism was a thing, if God was actually raising an army and God was for one nation as opposed to another nation, and that there was a nation whose God is the Lord out there other than ancient Old Covenant Israel, you would think that history would bear that out. But history bears out quite the opposite. If Christian nationalism was a real thing, if it was legitimate, then wouldn't Rome from Constantine on, Constantine forward, be a stellar example of Christian nationalism? After all, it was under the rule of Constantine in the Roman Empire when he outlawed not being a Christian. In other words, he legalized Christianity and he made it illegal not to be a believer, not to be a Christian. And so in order to make everyone conform, infant baptism was inaugurated. And so parents would be forced, coerced, under threat of punishment if they failed to, have their children baptized. And in that economy, in that system, belief wasn't even on the, on the table. It wasn't even on the radar. It didn't matter if you believed or not, because as long as you lived in a geographic location that was under Roman rule, you were part of that system. You were part of that religious sacral system. And in order to conform to that system, in order to show that you were a part of that system, required infant baptism. You're, you had to have your kids baptized. If you were an adult during that time, you had to be baptized, whether you believed or not. That wasn't the point. The point was, you're going to get marked out as part of this kingdom, as part of this empire, where everybody in it now is considered a believer, a Christian. We're going to Christianize the whole system, and we're going to coerce people to join the system. You didn't have an option in that sacral system. The emperor had spoken, and you better conform or you're going to be punished, up to and including death. So in that system, Christian nationalism failed big time. You would think that we would see the fruit of the Spirit going on, if it was legitimate. 
you would think that we would see fruit like love, peace, joy, patience, kindness, etc., etc., these fruits of the Spirit that only the Spirit produces. But instead, what did we see? We saw a bloody time in the history of the world. We saw people being killed left and right by the government that proclaimed to be a Christian government. And it wasn't long before we saw things like the Crusades, where, where the church would kill those who opposed it or who had differing viewpoints because you couldn't argue or disagree with the emperor because the emperor was top dog in that system. But it was a failed system. It was a failed Christian nationalism system. It was a militarized faith that was no faith at all. And as a militarized faith, it punished those who disagreed with it. So when we think of Christian nationalism, we think of control. We think of those who want to be in control, those who want to be in charge and who want to not only be in charge, but impose their views, their interpretation of things on us. Like I said a minute ago, it's real easy to take a scripture out of context and make it say what you want it to say, especially when we ignore the bigger context of scripture, that of Old Covenant and New Covenant. And let me reiterate something too that I've said many times in this show, is that nothing in the Bible was written to you and I. The recipients of what was written in the Bible have all died. None of them are around. And so we have to put what we read in the Bible back in context. We have to keep it in the, in the bigger context of which covenant was this, and then we have to kind of narrow down that context to what was going on when the individual wrote and why did this individual write to this group of people. But instead, we like to take this blanket interpretation of Scripture and think, oh, this is all written to us. And so we'll take the Psalms that are all about military advancement, and we'll either take them literally or we'll spiritualize it and we'll say, we should be doing this. This is what we are. This is what God expects of us. And we militarize our faith. It's like that song at the beginning, you know, I'm in the Lord's army. I'm in the Lord's army. But is an army really what God is doing in the world? Is God raising up an army? You remember Jesus' own words when he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight. That's an important passage to kind of tuck away somewhere in this kind of a conversation. And I get that, you know, this can be kind of an emotional topic. You know, I was alive in the 70s and 80s, and to a certain extent, I bought into this Christian nationalism thing because it was kind of the tidal wave that was going on in society at the time, at least with the church. And it's kind of an emotional time. I mean, you'd get on there, you hear, you'd hear all this stuff about Christian nationalism and think, yeah, this is good. This is really good. And if you stood up and said, well, wait a second, I don't think this is right. Then you were kind of marked out and, you know, you were to be avoided or whatever. And you were kind of the black sheep of the squadron. But you think about all of the military influence that the church in the 21st century, at least in the West, has endured. And within the institutional church, you know, we're expected to line up under the authorities, and the authorities, of course, being the level of pastors that we have, that we have given honorific titles to, and, you know, there might be seven or eight levels of pastors that we have to go through to get to the top person in this, in this thing. It's kind of like that, isn't it? If I'm a private in the army, then I can't go talk to a general just on a whim. There's a chain of command. And unfortunately, we brought that chain of command into the body of Christ. And now, no, you can't go speak to the executive pastor. 
you need to go speak to one of the lower ranked people over here who are the executive pastor's minions, and they do his or her dealing for him or her. That's the system we've got, and that's militaristic. But let me share a quote with you that I shared a number of episodes ago. I did an episode, I don't know, a couple years ago probably, called Captain and Commander, where I touched on this a little bit. But in that episode, I was interacting with John Zen's excellent book called A Church Building Every Half Mile, which, by the way, if you don't have that book, you should get that in your library. It's a really good read. But in that book, John Zenz quoted C. Peter Wagner, who I, I don't know who this is, but C. Peter Wagner said this, quote, The army has only one commander-in-chief, Jesus Christ. The local church is like a company with one company commander, the pastor, who gets his orders from the commander-in-chief. The company commander has lieutenants and sergeants under him for consultation and implementation, but the final responsibility for decisions is that of the company commander, and he must answer to the commander-in-chief. The pastor has the power in a growing church. The pastor of a growing church may appear to outsiders as a dictator, but to the people of the church, his decisions are their decisions. End of quote. And so do you see how a quote like this is so indicative of the topic that I'm talking about, of a Christian nationalism? I mean, he even says it here in this quote, the local church is like a company with one company commander, the pastor. He gets his orders from the commander-in-chief, who in this analogy is Jesus. And then the company commander, the pastor, has, quote, lieutenants and sergeants under him for consultation and implementation but the final responsibility for decisions is that of the company commander or the pastor, end of quote. And then that last statement that he made about the pastor having power in a growing church and to people on the outside, it may appear like he's a dictator. I'm like, yeah, that's kind of what he is. But to the people of the church, his decisions are their decisions. Not true. Not true, people. Because in the body of Christ, you are free to make your own decisions. But do you see what's going on with this quote? It's militarized. It's a militant faith. It's Christian nationalism brought into the body of Christ with the same kind of analogies where the pastor is the commander. Jesus, Jesus is the commander-in-chief. The pastor is under Jesus in that pecking order. And then you, Christian, are underneath the pastor, and the pastor is there to tell you what to do because he's the one getting the orders from the commander-in-chief, who is Jesus. Now, I can't think of a church or religious situation where this doesn't turn toxic, where this isn't bad, where this isn't bad for you, or this is not unhealthy. Because Christian, the New Covenant Scriptures tell you that you have an anointing from, from Jesus himself, from God himself, and that you have no need for anyone to teach you. Did you catch that? You have no need for anyone to teach you. Now, I enjoy sitting under good teaching. I listen to podcasts all the time that have good teaching. If you want to know what those are, I can tell you. But I enjoy sitting under teaching that actually understands the gospel and attempts to look at Scripture within context and promote the new covenant gospel of grace. I enjoy that, but I don't need that. According to the Scriptures, I don't need it. It's not a need, but I do enjoy it. And so, Christian, you and I have an anointing from God himself, and we, we don't have a need for anyone to teach us. 
And yet, in a militaristic faith, or in a militaristic Christian setting, it's necessary to have that pecking order in place. And in this instance, in the quote that I just shared with you, military terms are substituted for that pecking order. And so we have the commander-in-chief, we have the company commander, and then there's you and I, the lowly laity, and I'm using air quotes, you all know where I stand on the clergy-laity thing. And again, this is just indicative of what I'm talking about. This whole idea of a militarized faith and of Christian nationalism kind of gone amok. There's another quote from Zen's book that he includes. This one's by a guy named David L. McKenna. And David L. McKenna said this. He said, quote, The pastor is like the cerebellum, the center of communicating messages, coordinating functions, and conducting responses between the head and the body. The pastor is not only the authoritative communicator of the truth from the head to the body, but he is also the accurate communicator of the needs from the body to the head. End of quote. And so this guy is saying that the pastor is like the brains of the outfit. He's the one who stands between you and God. In other words, Jesus mediating for you isn't enough. You need this individual standing there because this individual knows your needs and communicates those to God. In fact, not only does he know your needs, he's the one who knows them best. He knows them better than you do. And so he's going to communicate them to God for you. And then when God responds, or if God gives him some other direction, or you know whatever might be going on in that situation, he is going to communicate that back to you. And so we have this person again set on a pedestal in this pecking order, who is top dog, who is running the show, and who is the only one qualified to know what God's will is for you, and to communicate what you're thinking back to God. In other words, your job is to be seen but not heard. And that's a direct result of some kind of militarized faith that has that pecking order in place that, as the first quote that we read says, the pastor's decisions are your decisions. No, no, no. Not in the body of Christ. In a military experience, yes, there is that pecking order. You need that. It would be chaos without it. It would be anarchy without it. But in the body of Christ, that has no place. I'm not in the Lord's army. I'm a member of the body of Christ. I'm a member of his kingdom. And his kingdom, again, is not of this world. If it were, his servants would have fought. Again, I think the issue is one more of control than anything. That there are those within the body of Christ who think they have to be in charge, who think they have to be in control of something. And when they start to lose control, when they lose their grip on you, they get scared. Because you become uncontrollable and I become uncontrollable. But in that kind of a situation, let me ask a question. Who controls the controllers? If someone's going to control the whole thing, who's controlling them? Where does this thing stop? Where does it start? Who's really in charge? I mean, this just opens up so many questions for me that I I don't have answers for, obviously. But I ask these kind of questions because this is what I think about when I'm thinking about this topic. Who controls the controllers? Let me give you a, maybe it's a cheesy example, but let me give you an example of what I mean. Let's talk about Facebook for a minute. I'm not a huge fan of Facebook for a lot of reasons. I mean, I'm there, but I don't get on it much. I don't interact a whole lot on there. But 
The reason I bring up Facebook is because I noticed if someone says something and I want to comment on it, if I if someone else has already commented, let's say I see a post on there and 15 people have commented. So I hit comments. I just want to see what people are thinking, what people are saying. Well, there's a little drop-down window after you click on comments, and mine always says most relevant. In other words, we're showing you the most relevant comments. We're showing you the comments that you really need to see. You don't need to see everything. You just need to see this. These are the most relevant for you. Well, my question is, who decided what's most relevant for me? Who decided that? So I always change that to all comments because I want to see what's going on. But the, the principle is there and it supports what I'm saying in this podcast is that, again, who controls the controllers? Who decided what's relevant for me? Well, it's the same thing in a militaristic, religious setting. Someone is deciding what's best for you and what's best for me. What's most relevant? So yeah, maybe it's a cheesy example in Facebook, but it's an example nonetheless that I think is valid and that I think illustrates my point. Who controls the controllers? Who's deciding what's most relevant for me? Who's deciding what I should be able to read and what I shouldn't be able to read? Well, in the history of the church, in the history of the body of Christ, when we look at church history, this has been its plague all along. Is this hierarchy of authority, this top-down authority of ranking within the body of Christ that's been superimposed on the body of Christ starting way back when, it's foreign to the New Testament, New Covenant scriptures, and it came about in the second century of what we call church history. And it's this hierarchy of authority that we're supposed to line up under and that we're not supposed to say anything about and we're just supposed to blindly accept it. In other words, somebody in church history, in the entire history of church history, has been deciding what's, what's relevant or what's most relevant for all of those involved. And it's no different today. This is, this is what's most relevant. You need to read this. You need to listen to this. But don't listen to that over there because that's not relevant. I remember hearing that from, from the pulpit one time. This individual's name came up in the pulpit, and I wasn't the one speaking. I was listening. But this individual's name came up in the pulpit, and then the comment was made by the uh, pastor who was saying this. He said, well, he's one of the good guys, but don't read his stuff. Now let that, let that sink in a minute. He's one of the good guys, but don't read his stuff. In other words, he's not relevant. I'm going to tell you as your pastor what's most relevant to you and what you need to be listening to. Yeah, he's a good individual, but don't read his stuff. And that's just another personal story, personal example that reinforces my thinking on this whole thing, is that in this militaristic type of atmosphere within the body of Christ, we're constantly being told what to do by those in charge. But you know, again, I've said this over and over in here, the ones who put pastors in charge were other pastors. You can't read church history and not see that, not come away with that. And Christian, you have no need for anyone to teach you. So I'm going to just leave you with those thoughts. You know, this is some of my thoughts on Christian nationalism and on a militaristic faith and how we've brought that whole militaristic model within the body of Christ. And we've kind of, it's another thing that we've kind of foistered onto the body of Christ. And I wanted to just bring it to your attention and let you know that I've been thinking about it. 
So hey, that's all I have for you in this episode of the Unsunday Show. I want to thank you for joining me again on this episode. I really appreciate it. And until next time, y'all take care. Thank you for joining us on the Unsunday Show. To be a part of this ongoing conversation, visit us online at unsunday.com.